Equity Matters, a free podcast that uses personal storytelling to talk all things equity. My name is Dr. Miranda War, and I am your host. And as always, I like to think of myself as a community educator, a youth builder, and a curriculum developer. And even though I am an assistant professor at the George Washington University and a nonprofit executive with Promising Futures, all the ideas that I express here are mine. And today, I'm actually going to have another interview. So like last episode, I invited one of the guest speakers from the five-part health equity professional development learning series that I designed and led at GW. And all of the content from that series was recorded live, and now it's archived online. Speaking of which, you should stay tuned because I'm actually working on turning all this content into online modules where you can actually earn continuing education units or just a certificate of completion. So more about that later. But on today's show, which is called Calling Out Health Workforce Inequities, we're going to hear and learn from Dr. Candace Chen. I actually became connected with her through her mentor, the late and great Dr. Fitzhugh Mullen. So we ended up having coffee at one of my favorite coffee spots, Bourbon, and I just knew from that time that we had to remain connected because there were so many things that we had in common as far as our values and just our our work history. So I invited her to lead one of the roundtable discussions at the Translating Health Equity into Action Symposium, which was the culminating event in that five-part health equity series that I was talking about that actually ended at the top of this year. But before you can call out inequities, you have to be able to recognize them as such. So here's our interview. So we are joined by Dr. Candace Chen, a pediatrician and associate professor in the Fitzhugh Mullen Institute for Health Workforce Equity in the Milken Institute School of Public Health here at the George Washington University. And she is here today on the episode of Equity Matters to talk about health workforce equity. So welcome. Thank you. How are you feeling? How are you doing? Great. I'm really love happy to, to be here. Yes. Thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. Okay. So let's jump right in. And why don't you share what is health workforce equity and how you got involved in this work? Sure. Health workforce equity are words I think that aren't often said together. Mm -hmm. Um, So let me really quickly just start by what we mean by health workforce. Um, And the I think that the easiest way I can explain what health workforce is, is the fact that and I think most people will understand this, um, that you can't deliver health care without people. And so health workforce is about the people needed to deliver health care. Um, and that is everything from the numbers of all the different kinds of health workers. Um, that is about where they practice, um, whether they practice in rural and underserved communities. Um, it's about who they serve. And so some of the things that we care a lot about are whether health, different health professionals um, take care of Medicaid population, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also about what they do. Uh, and I think that... Uh, people who follow health workforce a lot, that might be a kind of a new concept for people, that it's not just about the numbers and the wares. It's about it's literally about what they do and the and the 
and the way that they practice, the choices that they make, um, and the systems around them that either support or limit their ability to provide really high quality care um, and, and also have implications for cost. And then when we put those words together, health workforce equity, um, it's really a pr an approach at looking at health workforce that is focused on the issues of, well, well of equity. Um, it's focused on whether the highest need communities have access to health care, whether the highest need communities have access to high quality health care. Um, and again, we do care about cost because the health workforce is part of a system that's driving the cost of healthcare in America, um, and and when you start thinking about things like how much we spend in the healthcare sector um, and what that might be doing to other budgets, like the education budget, um, we start to care a lot about cost, not just to control the cost of healthcare spending, but because it's it it impacts uh, other areas and other social determinant areas. Um, so that's what we mean by health workforce equity. How did I get involved in this work? Um, I, I think I, got, I might have gotten involved in this work in, in the same way that many people get involved in health equity work. Um, I cannot say that I went through college or was applying to medical school uh, with this idea that I was going to do health equity work. Um, at that point, however many years ago, I don't think people even used the words health equity. Mm -hmm. But in college, I started volunteering at the free clinic. Um, and that was probably my first exposure to the idea that not everybody had access to care. Um, and that for those people who are receiving care in a free clinic and for those healthcare providers providing care in a free clinic, that their access to other resources was limited and limiting their ability to provide the care that, that the communities and, and, the, and, the, um, and people really needed. Um, in medical school, I think some of my first exposures to the idea of moving beyond the ground level and kind of coming up to think about policy areas um, that were driving and that drive how health workforce can function um, and, and access to care and all the, all the things that we really care about um, was through a focus on ethics. And I ended up doing a track in in ethics, because again, back then, I don't think people even said, at least in the medical school kind of arena, I don't think people really, really talked about health policy. Um, so I did ethics. Um, and in ethics, we talked about limited resources and having to make difficult decisions. Um, went on to residency. And in residency, I was, I did my primary care clinic on a mobile van. And the mobile van was like one of these big blue vans they kind of look like the big mammogram vans that that you'll see sometimes and it was blue and it was really recognizable um, and there were two clinic rooms and we would go out in these two clinic rooms um, and and I would provide as a resident and I was learning to provide uh, primary care in in a clinic room that was probably the size of a broom closet um, and every day we would park in a different site and the site that I parked in we parked in every Wednesday was in the parking lot of an apartment building and I remember Dr. Gloria Wilderbrathwaite, um, this amazing community pediatrician who was the medical director of these clinics, say, saying so clearly that the, that the end, and again, these mobile clinics were so recognizable, mm -hmm. right? Um, and in some ways, when you have something that's so recognizable and filling such an obvious need, um, it can be easier to bring in funders. Um, but she was she was always so clear that the goal was not the mobile vans. The end goal is not the mobile vans, right? Because 
four days out of the week, the van is parked somewhere else. So the communities that were that needed it in that spot didn't necessarily know where to go the other days of the week um, and couldn't necessarily access care the other days of the week. And the capacity of the van to really meet the needs of the community, you know, two little clinic rooms, right, with really just one pediatrician and if there was a resident with them, one resident with them, just didn't have the capacity to really meet the needs of the community. And she just talked about how the end goal is a stable clinic with a stable workforce provide the care that's needed. And actually, that was mm, almost 20 years ago. And at this point, there is a amazing stable site in Southeast DC that that has so many pediatricians in it, as well as social workers, as well as psychologists, as well as mm-hmm. dental suite. Um, and so that kind of dream of hers, I think, uh, and because she worked at it, right? Um, and she really thought about these issues. And she thought about not only the workforce and drawing the workforce and the pediatricians and the other important workforce to to the community and, and creating a space where they could practice uh, and, and provide the care that, that the community really needs. Uh, so how I got to this, I think, was kind of this organic experience through, well, really through college and medical school and residency program and just kind of seeing on the ground what it means to provide care um, and to always be working towards providing care for the purposes of closing disparities and making sure that there's access so that people can get the health care they need when they need it. Beyond that, I ended up working here at George Washington University in the School of Public Health and really then started kind of my career in the, in the research and the policy around workforce which we can talk about more. Mm-hmm. That's exactly yeah. what I want to talk okay. about more, right? So, yeah. but first, before we even get into learning a little bit more about how all of those kind of converge, mm-hmm. I appreciate that description, right? Because sometimes um, language can be alienating, right? So we have a tendency in academia to use these words, and then there's an assumption that people understand what we're talking yeah. about. So that's literally why I wanted to have these types of conversations, because I want to ensure that people can support and really kind of move the needle towards justice, but they can access these conversations, right? So yes, when we talk about health workforce, we're talking about people. When we talk about health workforce equity, we're talking about policies right and really and really addressing all those upstream factors that we know impact people so thanks for putting that together and then also just kind of talking about you know just your story and how you kind of you know ended up where you are and so um I know you're not just the you know a public um or I wouldn't even say public, just like a health policy professor. You are also a clinician and a researcher. And so kind of talk us through how those, you know, working in those different capacities allows for you to really address workforce equity, in particular health workforce equity. Sure. Um, I'm going to be completely honest. I am not that clinical these days. I don't I don't spend a lot of time in the clinic. Um, I spend maybe one day a month uh, okay. doing uh, primary care pediatrics out in Southeast DC. Um, that is the site and the location that I have essentially practiced in since I was a resident. Oh, where? At, at the Ark. Oh, okay, awesome. Yeah, yeah. which is amazing, an amazing place Absolutely. with the most amazing people. Yeah. Um, and but I will say that I think, and, and I talked about it a little bit more uh, already, but my experience, it's it, well, it's super humbling. Right. It both shows me how important it is to have people there, but it also, for me, and I'm going to be completely honest, I came from privilege, um, uh, immigrant family, but upper middle 
squarely upper middle class, uh, well-educated, very supportive family, um, and in the end went from college to medical school to residency and kind of just followed that that uh, that medical school physician pathway um, pretty, you know, right on the path. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I, w- I know that I was incredibly privileged. And I always, I would reflect back on the first couple of years when I was in the clinic providing primary care. And I'm always really thankful that I think that the community was very um, forgiving of me because mm-hmm. I made so many mistakes mm-hmm. and I was saying things that were probably very, not thoughtful, um, and I'm actually so thankful now when you when you kind of look out and and the ideas of cultural competence I think are really developing in much better ways so that hopefully people are not making the same mistakes and having to learn on the ground um, and and needing to depend on the community to be forgiving. Right. Well, I have a sneaky suspicion that yeah. there are a lot of you know practitioners that still have to. Yes. Have yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and actually, that's a right. that's a part of what I think we do with right. with health workforces is we right. really think about communication. And relationships are mm-hmm. so important. Right. Um, and so a lot of the things that we think about are, yes, how important things like um, concordance are and patient preferences mm-hmm. um, and the ability to communicate. And then how things like diversity in health professions education um, can help with that. And there's evidence that it helps with that. Whenever I say that, though, I always think it's really, really important to, to recognize that um, diversity is not only for the purposes of uh, cultural competency, that within our own house, within the house of medicine or within the house of healthcare, that we need to think about equity for the workforce as well. Um, and the fact that a lot of these health professions are uh, opportunity, right, right, our economic opportunities, um, and that we have to be really thoughtful all the way back to how we're investing in pipeline programs, how we're recruiting, how we're admitting, um, how we are supporting diversity in our schools. For that reason, of I would say equity, diversity, inclusion in our own house, how we treat our own workforce. So I think I was talking about how um, my clinical experience drives me. You know, the clinical side drive uh, is every day I go out and I, I see things that then kind of drive the rest of, uh, of my work. Actually, I have this, this funny story of I was not clinical for about two years. Um, and so about a year ago, I went back to the clinic. When I went back to the clinic, they had, um, I, I drove up and they had actually built a brand new building across the, the, the parking lot. Uh, and I went in and the, and the clinic is a lot bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, it is designed to be much more patient-centered, um, just in a fantastic space. Um, and the first day when I was there and we were walking around, we walked around and we looked in, um, in a dental clinic suite, two dental chairs, mm-hmm. which, which for uh, many, many communities access to oral health care and access to the oral health care workforce, dentists, dental hygienists. Um, there's this issue of dental therapists that's rising, which is somewhere between a dental hygienist and a, and a dentist, um, is a really controversial issue that's rising in some, in some states. And we, we walk by, and the medical director at the time shows me the dental clinics, and I am so excited that now there are, there are stable, stationary dental chairs, um, and they're beautiful, and they have the, like, TV screens, mm-hmm. right, because they're kids, and, right. um, and the anxiety of seeing a dentist, um, and they're beautiful. And, and, and I'm expressing my excitement at this, and she turns to me, and she says, yeah, you know, one of the things that we're really hoping to do is to get the dental residents, the pediatric dental residents, out to the clinic to be able to provide care. Um, and then she goes, but did you know it's really hard to get a dentist to come out and work in Southeast D.C.? And I went, 
that's health workforce equity. Right. That's a health workforce issue. Um, and that's exactly the kinds of issues that we that we work on. So the things that I do out in the clinic, I think almost every day it, there's something that kind of strikes me about that or that has implications for health workforce and this issue of health workforce equity. The research that we do then reflects that. What we aim to do with our research is to understand the places where health workforce is impacting either positively or negatively equity. Um, And are there places where uh, the things that are happening with our health workforce and and the way that our health workforce is developed, the way that our health workforce is supported, the way that our health workforce is paid Mm -hmm. that are, well, quite quite simply are are promoting disparities, are are resulting in, in disparities. Um, and, and then also understanding some of the new models of care that, that will hopefully start to close those disparities, but also have to be watched very carefully, right? Because even if the intent is there, we still need to do the research to make sure that we actually achieve those end aims. And so some of the research that we're best, best known for is a, is a study, and actually this is how I initially, this is the first big study that I worked on. I was recruited to work with, a, uh, with an amazing um, mentor, an amazing person. Uh, Fitzhugh Mullen, who passed away just about three months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and when he first passed away, uh, a colleague kind of went, we've, we've lost a giant in our field. Um, and, and that, Yeah, and I think that's a really good description of him. But one of the very first things that he recruited me to come work with him on was um, something called the Medical Education Future Study. But it ultimately, the first paper it produced was a social mission rankings of medical schools. And it was in some ways really as research, relatively straightforward in the sense that what it did is, is it took all the medical schools in the United States at the time, and it looked at three major outcomes. It looked at how many, what percentage of the graduates were going into primary care, because I think many people at that point and still, we have a real problem with having enough primary care mm-hmm. um, health uh, providers. So how many of the graduates were in primary care? How many of the graduates were working in health professional shortage areas? And it looked at the diversity of the medical school classes. Um, and basically it looked at those three very, in some ways, very straightforward outcomes. Um, the data isn't easy, but the outcomes are pretty straightforward. Uh, and then we created a ranking of all the medical schools based off of those three outcomes. And if you have heard of something called the U.S. News and World Report uh, rankings, it basically at the time flipped those rankings upside down. And a lot of the schools that you see rank very, very well in the U.S. News and World Report were in the bottom mm-hmm. quartile. Um, and it brought up and highlighted these schools that aren't often talked about and don't often gain a lot of national recognition. And it brought them right up to the top um, in terms of diversity, in terms of their primary care outcomes, in terms of their output of people into health professional shortage areas. Um, And and what that study really did was is it was about highlighting and putting a spotlight and putting some data and analysis on a systemic problem. Um, And the fact that school by school, we could show that some schools were doing a much, much better job at producing the workforce that communities really need, Mm -hmm. that American communities really need, um, compared to others. And that, you know, in kind of our day-to-day life, all the many of the schools that um, have such brand recognition weren't necessarily doing doing the things that, again, American communities needed. So that's the kind of research. I, I think that's kind of research that Fitz was known for, what I, what I kind of think of as like courageous or audacious research. But from that, 
uh, not only did it create a little bit of a stir in the community, but again, like I said, it really highlighted some of the schools that were doing the hard, hard work, right? Kind of going against every incentive in the mm-hmm. system to to do the things that, again, were necessary, were, necessary, were yes, needed. Exactly. Absolutely. Um, and from there, it's been about 10 years from that time, um, from there, um, a, a lot of additional initiatives have developed. Um, some research, some about convening. Um, I think that the Beyond Flexner Alliance, mm-hmm. is, which is a national movement that's all aimed about supporting and moving health professions education towards social mission, towards addressing health equity, um, was, was, was born out of some of that research. Yeah, and the Beyond Flexner Alliance is a really great opportunity to be connected to other like-minded professionals. I think it's a great way to just expand your network, Mm -hmm. especially if you find yourself as like one of the only your institution that cares about this. (laughs) Go to the Beyond Flexner, a little uh, little PSA, a little plug (laughs) with Beyond Flexner, so that you can um, explore, find your people, right? Absolutely. And then, um, you know, see opportunities to engage in research, get feedback, because that's what I know, that's what I did, actually how I met Fitz when I went and I kind of shared the work that I was doing around health health equity and the health equity curriculum that I'm I'm designing, kind of expanding for the undergraduates here. And I got really helpful, instrumental feedback, got some love, got some support, which is what I needed to kind of, you know, have that momentum, like, okay, I can do this. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Thank you for that uh, plug, because I think that's exactly what the why Beyond Flexner exists. Yeah. Um, and, we, and we are having a, our big conference. It's coming up in April, April 20th to 22nd. Mm-hmm. Um, it's happening in Phoenix. And I've had the opportunity to look at all the abstracts and read so many amazing abstracts. And, and the work that people are doing is an, is is phenomenal. Right. And, organization, and, and different things in different organizations and so many things that are moving in different places. And so it's a great place to come and get ideas, to come and get resources and tools, to make connections, like you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, we're really excited about this conference. And actually this conference, I, I think another good thing about this conference is, is it's going to be probably our most interprofessional conference yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in the planning, we've really had uh, leaders in nursing and leaders in the, in the dental um, community helping us plan. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think it's going to be an amazing conference. It's, it's a little bittersweet because this is the first conference that, that our founder right. is not going to be at. So meaningful in many different ways. Right. But he's passed the torch of leadership to very capable hands, yeah. yourself included, right? So speaking of which, I actually want to talk about that. What does yeah. that mean to have been mentored by someone so extraordinary yeah. like Fitz, right? And what does that even mean when we talk about health workforce equity? Where does mentorship actually fit into that? How does that actually move, really move the needle towards mm-hmm. having a more just workforce by ensuring that those who are entering the pipeline, those who are entering this, mm-hmm. these professions, mm-hmm. have strong mentorship? Yeah. You know, role modeling and mentorship is so important. And mm-hmm. there's evidence that shows this right. in terms of what people end up going to, to do. You know, personally, I can I can say that having a mentor like Fitz, and I think that there's so many people who who have said this about him in particular, but so many of us can, you know, even if it's not about Fitz, there are so many people who can identify these mentors in their lives who effectively changed their lives, right? right? When we think about health equity, when we think about health workforce equity, and the extreme need that we have for people to be working in these areas, um, the things that mentors can do and the fact that um, those of us who have been mentored need to be thoughtful about this as well. Mm-hmm. The things that mentors can do is, is to bring people up into this space to support them, to help them find the thing that drives their their passion and then help them 
figure out how they build a career out of it is is so absolutely critical. And again, I look back at, and I was so lucky to have the mentor, the mentors that I've had in my mm-hmm. career. Um, and there's there's a couple um, in various places where I where I can say they changed my life. Mm-hmm. They made me see things in ways that I never saw before. Um, and and actually working with Beyond Flexner Alliance um, and working with some of the some of the people who are who volunteer um, to be on our various committees. We hear those stories too. There's a, an amazing researcher um, and clinician. Her name is Altaf Saidi, mm-hmm. um, and she does work on the experience of racism by healthcare workers, um, and particularly with some of the global things going on in the world. And and she tells us she, she you know she's told a story about how once she started talking about her work and the kind of work that she does, um, she would have medical students come up to her and be like, I didn't know that they, I didn't even know this kind of work existed and that you could you could build a career around right. this right. And so it's that 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 inspiration, uh, but beyond inspiration, I, people need people need help. Uh, and so we all I think we all have a responsibility um, to to turn around and provide that role modeling that mentorship when we have the opportunity to, to do it. Right, and so I, I love that you you use the plural of the form, saying mentors, recognizing that there's not gonna be just one person yeah. that can be the end all be all for all things you know professional, academic, you know, related in your life. You definitely need a network of mentors. Mm-hmm. So now that we have some background kind of questions underway, I wanna turn our attention to making some connections between this concept of health workforce equity to maybe just more broader social justice issues. So, you know, for instance, I want to talk about, you know, going back to workforce issues, income and wage parity. And what better way to kind of talk about that than the start of Women's History Month, right? So, yes, it is March 2nd. And yes, speaking of women in history, we as women have historically been underpaid and undervalued in a range of professions, including the health professions, yeah. even though Absolutely. the health professions are dominated by women. Yes. Yes. But when you zoom into very specific subfields, we know which ones are, you know, mm-hmm. where you actually don't see that trend. And those are the higher paying professions, right? So one of the things that I shared with um, a group of students that are in the HCOP program that we have, the Health Careers Opportunity Program. It's a HRSA-funded initiative that we lead here in the health sciences to encourage more students from underrepresented backgrounds coming from economic or educational disadvantage to enter health professions, is um, I share some data from a 2017 HRSA report that was based on the National Center for Health Workforce Analysis, Mm -hmm. really looking at sex and Mm -hmm. race and ethnic diversity in, you know, the U.S. health occupations. And what I really like about this table that I share with them is that it kind of breaks down the health occupations by kind of subcategory, so you can, like, kind of get a feel for where, you know, women are working, where Mm -hmm. men are working in the field, right? So it wasn't a surprise to see that, I mean, again, like I said, overall, definitely you will see that women dominate, but especially in some subfields. So when it comes to community and social service occupations, like counselors, social workers, psychologists, right? women dominated. If you look at healthcare support, personal care um, services like personal care aides, home aides, 
massage therapists, dental assistants, medical assistants, you know, women. Even health technicians, right, by and large, are women. That was medical records, dental hygienists, and and the sort, except for EMT. That was definitely uh, male-dominated. But it was the the diagnosing, treating, practitioner occupations that really gave me pause. And I'm just like, okay, let's look Mm -hmm. at this, right? Because on the one hand, yes, a good number of them, if you look at like registered nurses, PTs, OTs, PAs, speech language pathologists, women. But chiropractors, dentists, optometrists, physicians, men, right? So then we got to talk about, okay, so there are very specific fields. If men are going to enter a health profession, these are the fields that they're, you know, widely entering. And even when we do have, you know, women in the same positions, they're not earning the same, right? And it's now 2020, we have the same statistics. And so we need to kind of have that conversation, yes, about those differences, and also, you know, how that can be exacerbated when you add in other social differences like race and ethnicity Mm -hmm. and, you know, being differently abled or just like a range of other differences. So what do you, what would you say are some of those key barriers to workforce equity? You summarized it so well. (laughs) (laughs) And I think what you were summarizing is a kind of our history of gender discrimination um, in our labor, in our labor work, in our workforce in general. Um, And then you see it absolutely reflected in the health workforce. Um, And and I think everything that you said is absolutely true that, you you know, one of the such such an interesting thing about working in health workforce is and, and health workforce equity, we'll say, is, is that you can kind of aggregate everything up to big numbers. Right. And you can say things like, oh, but look at even in in the in the uh, in medical schools. I think it was just this past year that medical schools went to about 51 percent women. Right. Right. So there's history and it takes time to rebalance history. Right. Right. Um, And everybody went, look at this. Fifty one percent women. However, when you start looking at things like income differences, right. right? Why do those continue to exist, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and there's so much that we still need to do. Research is necessary to unpack those things. To, and and, and as, as terrible as it is to prove to people that it's there and right. it's real. Right. And then it's not just, what I love is, is the work that's starting to happen on unconscious bias, mm-hmm. right? But a lot of the, if, you, if you're only thinking about unconscious bias as something that is what an individual does, right, then we're probably missing the point. Absolutely. It definitely shows up in algorithms. It shows up in interpretation of data right. and policy. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> Absolutely. And if you're, if you're going to change it, yes, we want to help individuals recognize when they have unconscious bias, but what we want to do is to start looking into our systems mm-hmm. and looking for the structural causes of whether it's gender discrimination or whether it's race, ethnicity. Those are the places Yes, let's turn and look at ourselves, but then turn out and look at the systems and, and how do we start unpacking those systems. Um, and, and, oh boy, you know, that is, there's a lot, well, there, let's just say there's a lot to unpack. Absolutely, a lot of moving parts, there's right? There's a lot to unpack and there's a lot of work to be done. But, but if we can do that, if we can say, in my team, in my culture, in my organization, when I move beyond my organization, in the systems, in the policies, what are the things that are, you know, that maybe as a result of history that we need to undo, um, what are the new protections that we need to put in place, mm-hmm. um, and how do we aim to rectify, right. we'll say. Um, 
and not just with time hope that things get better. Right. It's like, so my mind is spinning in so many different directions as you're talking because I'm just like, oh, I remember this. Like, you know, even from the the insular conversations here at GW, conversations that are being had, you know, at faculty senate meetings talking about looking at, no, really, like, no, I'm just going to say it. You probably be like, oh, you're going to say it. I'm going to say it. <laughs> faculty senate meetings literally looking at, quote, unquote, oh, look, we have diversity and, you know, we don't have an issue with diversity for those very reasons that you just named, right? And like really not contextualizing, historicizing the data. It's like, okay, are you being serious right now? Of course we have an issue with diversity mm-hmm. at the George Washington University. Do you forget where we were? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Most higher education has this issue. No, oh, no, no, no. So, yeah, right, I'm right. definitely not saying this is limited to GWs, but I'm going to give very specific examples yeah. saying that, yes, we have these very conversations about diversity and have that tendency to do that, which is, oh, look, did you see our incoming class of medical students? Look, it's, you know, right. over half are women. We don't have an issue with diversity. That's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, those are absolutely. conversations that are happening amongst highly educated people. <laughs> and right. then so it's like, wait, wait a minute. So we have to really understand what is it yeah. that we're really talking about and not looking at, you know, in the, in the interpretation of the data that will make you one think that, oh, that's not our issue. That's an issue that someone else needs to deal with. Absolutely, it's our issue. And so we have to have those conversations. And I do appreciate that you brought up the unconscious or implicit bias Mm -hmm. because, you know, in the Black Lives Matter era that we live in, there's a tendency for us and to kind of talk about, you know, and not even just limited to like black lives mattering, but to really kind of think about the ways in which a lot of other historically marginalized groups are, um, you know, not included, right? And so, you know, what does that mean to use like restorative justice practices or to use, you know, uh, to be culturally responsive? I know, you know, a lot of people use the term, um, culturally competent, which is not a term that I personally subscribe to, but it's, you know, the idea that, you know what, you really have to recognize that there is a lifelong, you know, engagement with learning how to understand people's mm-hmm. cultural needs, right, and how that changes and shifts and it's dynamic as people mm-hmm. are. So um, what would you say would be some concrete strategies or policies that you're familiar with that either have worked are underway that are being proposed that really can address some of these um, health workforce issues that we've you know identified. Oh my gosh, uh, hmm. there's so many. There's so much to talk about here. Right, it is. I think that there are, and, and this is probably from my work from Beyond Flexner Alliance. And so, a little bit of what I'm going to talk about is probably a little bit kind of targeted towards health professions education. Um, and again, I think that there are people doing amazing work about how to start discussions about racism with medical students or other health professional students. Um, so, so there's something about how we engage in the, in the discussion uh, with students. But how we engage with, with those discussions also then reflects the culture and the environment. Um, and, and some of the work that I do in, in, with uh, with my research is is about imprinting practice patterns onto healthcare providers, um, but issues like unconscious bias, issues of, how, of, of the decisions that we make on a day-to-day basis, issues of what we expect around us can be imprinted on people, right? And so there's, I, I mean, there's any amount of work that, that people are, that people are doing in various places um, from how you train 
and the reason I kind of bring this up, which might seem a little circular because I keep coming back to this issue of training, but the ability to introduce racism into your curriculum and to talk explicitly about it with all of the medical students in a class, right, um, is, is again a, likely a reflection of individual faculty members, maybe in partner, hopefully in partnership with the students themselves, mm-hmm. um, driving a, a culture change inside of their organization um, that, then, that then allows and supports that. There are also things that need to be done then when you have that kind of culture to say, okay, what else, mm-hmm. right? And then we talk about things like our recruitment and admissions policies. Um, then we can talk about things like, hey, we have a pipeline program, but how much are we really investing in that pipeline program? Exactly. And if we're serious about this, should, shouldn't we be doing more? Right. In most cases, I think with pipeline programs, we could do more. Absolutely. Right. right. Yeah. You want to see your values? Show your budget. Right. <laughs> and Yes. And and what I what strikes me is is we are in a, a you you talked about stuff that's happening at at GW here mm-hmm. at our own university. Mm-hmm. Um and I think I think it's actually very very important when our student body um rises mm-hmm. and demands something different. And they have and right. I love it. I'm here for it. Right. Yes. And then I love the fact that we have faculty members. Mhm who are there to say, yes, we're with you, right? right? Um, and you take that collective, in, some, in many cases, outrage. Mm-hmm. And the question is, is how do you tra- change it into organizational change? Right. Um, and, and, and in so many places, we really are just at the start of this. Um, but, but the issue is, is, is that I think that we want to develop community action, mm-hmm. support it, um, and then really push for the organizational changes. And it will... It, it does take some time. I actually love talking to some of the, to people from some of the some other uh, we'll say other organizations, other higher education organizations, um, some organizations where they are doing just the most amazing work. And, and when you look at them from an outsider, you would say, "Oh my gosh, right? You're making progress in the in um, in diversity and inclusion, yeah. right? Um, you're leaders in diversity and inclusion." And I have to I have to tell you every time I talk to one of them and I say, "How are you doing this?" and and, and and as an outside observer, I see the, these amazing things that you're doing. What does it actually look like on the inside, mm-hmm. right? And they they almost all tell me, even even ones who can say, you know, we started this 10 years ago, they kind of say it's still a work in progress. Mm-hmm. It's still right. a work in progress. There's still so much work to be done. Um, and you have to continue to push and you have to, you know, build your community. Um, the interesting thing I, did, I think about then also is, is some of the, the work that we do a little bit um, uh, in the Institute as well as you see happening across in – whether it's universities or whether it's different organizations, that's that's thoughtful about how do you train people to be leaders of, of health equity and health equity change, change that's going to improve health equity right. um, and address disparities. And um, that's a specific skill set. Absolutely. And that's why right. the Robert Wood Johnson has yes. that culture of health, you know, specifically focus on health equity and then health policy and things like that because they recognize right. that it takes a cultural change. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then I think that we need to think about what it is that is the core of our, our professions, mm-hmm. all of our professions. We're at the core of each of our professions. What's our responsibility to address health equity? And then maybe relook at what some of the core competencies, the core curriculum um, really needs to be so that it's not it's not always trying to fill a gap for people who are already early to, you know, somewhere in the middle of their careers, right, and mm-hmm. who are kind of recognizing, oh, my gosh, right, like I don't have the skill sets to be able to do the things that I want to do right. um, to, to advance health equity. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of work to be done. I think that there's a lot of people doing that kind of work 
more needs to be done. Right. And so speaking of people doing that work, so Mm -hmm. you know the national organization white coats for black lives yes. right and you yes. know that the the 14 metrics that they came yes. up with that are really you know about um, anti-racism mm-hmm. and how that can actually be translated yeah. into institutional policy yeah. and curriculum and the like um, specifically for medical schools and what i love going back to your idea mm-hmm. of kind of kind of like that groundswell and the ground up yeah. approach is that um, we actually have, again, very actively engaged and vocal students, whether that's at the undergraduate level or med school or where have you, right, yeah. here at GW, and I absolutely love that. And so we had a, a, like a committee of students that actually came together and wanted to take that those same metrics mm-hmm. and then assess the medical school curriculum. And one of those metrics was specifically about uh, admissions you know, policies related to asking those who are applying to med school if they've ever had a a criminal record, Mm -hmm. right? And so that type of question is not limited to medical school applications. We see that on applications for employment and the like, right? Which is, you know, other civic um, and social, you know, justice type of organizations like the NAACP and, and the like are really, you know, have all kind of come on board with this petition to kind of ban the box. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in thinking about the kind of like the cyclical nature of, no, really, right? Oh, no, of like absolutely. being discriminated. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> like, you know, if you're already more likely to be arrested, right? And right. like, say if you're, a, you know, a member of a population that's already more likely right. to be arrested, and then you're seeking employment, and then you have to check the box that, oh, look, I, okay, yeah, actually, I did have, you know, um, an arrest in the past, and then, okay, there goes that potential, you know, employment opportunity, and then you have legislation in, you know, in states that are actually requiring that you have so many hours, I think I want to say 20 hours a week to even be qualified for Medicaid, like the new Medicaid, right, the work requirement, so it's kind of like, wait, what, so literally keeping, you know, populations of people in poverty with no healthcare access, and it's kind of like, you can see going back to the systemic nature of this and how these policies can reinforce, you know, the, this generational poverty that people just cannot get out of. And that's, like, at the root of a lot of these issues is that poverty, right? And then, of course, you know, teased in that, obviously, is, like, racism and, and a range of other isms. So what are your thoughts on those type of, you know... I mean, again, and I brought that up because I know that even the group of students couldn't come to a consensus because, you know, there's just a lot of things to consider. They're like, oh, on the one hand, they're not going to be able to get placed because, you know, when you go off into a work at a clinic, you know, then you had an arrest record, X, Y, Z, you know, you did all this training and now no one's going to hire you or you yeah. can't, you know, do the yeah, training. Right? Right, right, but on right. the flip, then other people are like, that's exactly right. Everyone should be in the box, not just the school, but yeah. the clinic and the X, Y, Z, especially if it's not related to what you're going to do. Yeah. You know, so like even that, even that, you know, ban the box kind of, um, call and campaign is very, you know, clear mm-hmm. on we recognize that there are some cases where obviously it doesn't make sense to inquire, right? But there are some places where it's kind of like what, how mm-hmm. does me being, you know, arrested for marijuana relate to this job? Like, <laughs> no, really? <Yeah. laughs> so why can't I be considered, you know? Right. So all of that to say, it wasn't even a question, but the question is <laughs> like, what are your thoughts on all that though, right? Like, yeah. you know, it just, it just becomes really kind of like hairy and sticky. Like, how do you address yeah. these issues when we know there's just like so many levels to it, right? It's like very right. value oriented, right? Like, <laughs> right, right. You, you know, it, I think it's so interesting because when you talk about wanting to know whether somebody has a, an arrest history or when you talk about work requirements, I think that there is this knee jerk thing that makes sense to many people about some of those things. But it's only when you start to unpack them and have the discussions about, wait a minute, what is this really, what what does it really one do? 
Um, and then also, what is the history that it's that it's built on? And 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 you know, sometimes it's about uh, sometimes this is a place where research helps, right? I think with the work requirements for Medicaid, um, there's been lots of people who have done or some people who have done research about what what do the work requirements actually do in most states and 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 it's I think it's pretty well demonstrated that you know work restrictions mostly just create administrative barrier and mm-hmm. um, keep people who would otherwise actually be qualified for Medicaid off of Medicaid right. and so I think that the research helps to put some sense on some of these things mm-hmm. um, to put some evidence behind some of these things um, and, and then I think that it helps to talk about them. Right. And I I am, well, actually, I'll tell you one of the things that I love being here in GW, in the School of Public Health, in the Depe- Department of Health Policy and Management is, is that on so many different topics, there are people who are, well, just so smart, doing the most amazing research, but then just willing to engage in the discussion, mm-hmm. right? And we need people who are willing to engage in the discussion at every level. I think that we need to, as much as possible, I, there's a lot of discussion about people being in echo chambers and us only talking to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to find a way to come together um, and find where we have common ground. And if we don't have common ground, recognize that at least we've discussed it. Right. Um, and, and it's not. I mean, none of those things are particularly easy. Um, and I think a lot of people are frustrated in a lot of ways. A lot of people are scared in a lot of ways. Um, but I will tell you what inspires me is, is the fact that regardless of all that, there's people working on every one of these issues. Well, obviously, there's people working on all these issues because they've they've risen. Right. Um, and, and we have a lot of work to do on these issues, and we have a lot of work probably to do on issues that we haven't identified yet. Right. So, yeah, so I'm glad you brought that up because on the one hand, when you actually just sit back and think about all that's yet to be done, you may feel like, wow, I, I just feel overwhelmed and like I don't even know where to begin. Yeah. And it could be disheartening, right? So I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, wait, maybe I should just move, you know, or work in a different profession, right? <laughs> but if you look at, okay, yes, there's much to be done, but look from where we've come, right? Yeah. And <laughs> the, you know, and like you said, that groundswell, because that's why I love working with the I guess what is it what generation is this generation Z <laughs> like the, like undergraduates yeah. they're they're you know they're generation Z they're not the they're the right they're the group mm-hmm. right after millennials right mm-hmm. okay yes like I Gen you know like the little I yeah. and Gen like have you you heard about this I don't know no, but anyway no. <laughs> you work we work with graduate students oh, right yes. Is that what, yes okay so you work with millennials so no so I work with the generation Z and that's what I love about them you know I don't even have to have conversations around this is why we need to be inclusive and create brave space like they get it they're like no we we ready so what what we need to do (laughs) like literally when I ask a reflection question they're already asking about how can I check my privilege I know I'm like they are ready they literally want to have these conversations and you know not having conversations that are ahistorical apolitical like no we recognize all of that and we you know need to have these difficult discussions and in in ways even in the very kind of polarizing political climate that we live in um, you know, to have these important conversations because that's literally the only way that we're going to see change. That's literally the only way that we're going to be able to engage with a, a strategy that will actually be able to, you know, that'll have teeth, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Can I comment on the, sure. you know, that thing that you were saying about that there's so much to do. Yeah. And I think sometimes people look out and they're like, oh my gosh, there's so much to do. And and people can become paralyzed mm-hmm. in that situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that I think that the advice that you were giving, which I wholeheartedly agree with, is is you don't have to do everything, 
but if you do something. That's true. Carl, your one yes. little thing that you this is my contribution to the movement. Yes. <laughs> and and it's and that's good. Yes. And that's great. You're right. And then the other thing is is in most cases, in the places that you want to work, you are not alone. Mm-hmm. And that you can go out and you can find community. And and it, when you have community, it both helps you to advance the work a little bit faster, I think, but it also helps you f- keep from burning out. Thank you. So you know what? This is like a full circle, right? So this is why like communities like Beyond Flexner exist. Like I, I really swear this is not we're not getting paid. Like we don't <laughs> but it just makes sense for me to publicize this because th- this is yes. right. Yes. Especially when you feel like I'm the only one who cares about this. Like I'm out here, yeah. you know, on my lonesome on the little branch. Like <laughs> yeah. who else is there? Oh, we we are out here. Excuse like come, you know, yeah. and join this network of professionals who care about you know, the social mission of our work. Absolutely. So I think that this is a perfect segue into kind of sharing some resources, you know, for our listeners who are like, you know what, you're right. I want to be connected. I mean, we already, they already know that this resource is Beyond Flexner Alliance. Definitely get plugged into that. But beyond that, what can they do personally, professionally? You know, what can they look up? What can they read um, to really address or learn more about issues of work, health workforce equity? Right. You definitely talked about Beyond Flexner Alliance. And, and if you're in the health professions education space, Beyond Flexner Alliance is an amazing community. Um, and we definitely say come be a part of our, our community if you're trying to advance health equity um, in the health professions education space. If you're not in health professions education and you're in the larger health equity space, I think that there's any number of organizations that are doing work um, in this area, and they range from from focusing on things like the research and the kind of academic side of it to the grassroots organizing side of it. And and yeah, trying to name them all off is probably more than I can do right now. But they are out there, mm-hmm. and if you and and look for them, because that's what that's what Beyond Flexner exists for. That's what all of these organizations exist for. It's that knowledge that that particularly I think people working in this health equity space in a space that is still in a lot of ways and can be anti-establishment or mm-hmm. or not well supported by some of our more traditional either either the organizations that you're in or or, the, or say the funding organizations that are out there right, right. Um, so the reasons that these organizations exist like beyond Flexner is is, is to fill that gap right. so really important to go to go and find those things um, if you're interested in health workforce equity research the Fitzhumullen Institute obviously is focused specifically on that but the other thing that the Institute is the I'd say in the in the research space, there's a number of research centers across the across the U.S. In fact, HRSA funds the institute is one of seven funded institutes across the United oh, uh, centers okay. workforce research centers across the that. United States. Um, even even though the the rest of them don't necessarily um, fly the flag of health workforce equity, um, I think that the reality is is that they're all doing health workforce work and research focused on this issue of um, when there isn't access, um, when when the quality of care isn't is leading to disparities, right. um, and those issues, and so um, HRSA funds a number of those centers. So if you're looking for the research side of that, uh, everything from uh, there's one in New York, there is UNC Chapel Hill, um, UCSF, University of Washington, um, Michigan has one focused on behavioral health workforce. So so again, there are there are organizations and centers out there again that I think. Again, you know, a lot of it is is go find the people who who are doing the work that you're passionate about. And then if we go back to that original question about role modeling and mentorship. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, one of the things that I think early on in my career that I didn't quite realize was is that um, people want to hear from you. Right. Um, and what I've said to people is is that whether you're a student, whether you're a new academic researcher, faculty member, um, whether you're a community member, I have yet to turn anybody away when they wanted to meet or when they want to talk about anything. Um, and in fact, I love talking about my work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you come and look for me, I, I try to make it a priority to always respond. Doesn't matter who. Most people in this space are like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a little bit of just willingness that, and, and, I, and I, again, not that people pick up the phone that much anymore. I guess people more like send emails. But, um, but early in my career, I was very hesitant to, to pick up the phone. They don't want to hear from me. I'm going to be, you know, they're so busy. They're, 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 they're important, right? right. Um, I can't, I, why would they want to talk to me? I can tell you, uh, you know, I, I don't know that I, I am somewhere in the middle of my career. And, but when people contact me, I want to talk to them. I want to talk to them. And I think that, again, you know, when you talked about that kind of role modeling mentorship kind of Mm -hmm. role, I think that we all have a responsibility to do it. Um, There's also a joy in doing it. Okay. And so when you say you want to talk to them, should they just, you know, email you? Or can they also follow you online in any way? Do you have any handles (laughs) that you want to share? I I do. (laughs) Um, I cannot cannot, um, say that I am the most active (laughs) tweeter. Okay. Um, uh, My... uh, Twitter hashtag or handle is at cpchen2, um, and but the but the Beyond Flexner Alliance mm. has a um, has a Twitter account, uh, a Facebook account. Um, we now have Instagram going. Yeah, <laughs> we're figuring that one yes. out. That's my favorite. I yeah. love Instagram. The institute <laughs> does as well, okay. and so there's definitely ways to find us. Um, and one of the things that we're really working to do is is again, it's about sharing information, right? Right, um, and and so much of of, of being a part of this community is um, is a place where you can share your information and you can share your innovations and you can share your successes um, with the larger community. You can find partners, um, but it's also a place where you go to to find information. Um, and so we're really working hard to you know use our online presence, our social media presence, to be able to do some of those things. Um, and to, and again to create that online community mm-hmm. um, as that virtual community as well as um, at for example for beyond flexner when we have conferences um, it's amazing but the conferences happen every 18 months to two years is mm-hmm. what we aim for right now um, but what happens in the in-between right right and right. so we're really working hard to try to to try to build up that that online community that virtual community in the in-between mm-hmm. so they can definitely get plugged into mm-hmm. Both of those institutes, as well as Beyond Flexner, as well as you yes. online. So thank you so much for joining and sharing why health workforce equity matters. And hopefully we'll be hearing more from the Institute and the work that you're doing very soon. Wonderful. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about what we do. Awesome. Thank you. I trust that was helpful. Don't you just love her? Yes. Okay, so you know what you have to do, right? 
tap into the resources we shared. We talked a lot about the Beyond Flexner Alliance. So you can also share this podcast link with your colleagues and your friends and even start to think about the safety, the welfare, the inclusion, and fairness in your own workplace. Even though we had a tendency to just focus on the health workforce, this actually is a conversation that can extend to any workforce. So the question that I want you to think about is, do you call out inequities? And then if not, why not? Perhaps it's time for you to do some introspective work on how being complicit with oppression and, you know, institutionalized racism, sexism, and other isms actually may just keep your own privilege intact, but at the expense of wider social justice aims. Now, you may just say, no, you know, I'm just out here getting mine. No, remember, you will only truly be free when we all are. So that includes everybody at the margins of society, those that are overlooked and disregarded included. So this is literally the mattering that we discuss and we see in online hashtags. And the only way we can actually translate our timelines into activism in real time. So with that, thanks for tuning in.